This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Nilesh Mehta. Dr. Mehta is the Director of Nutrition and the Associate Medical Director in Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital. He's also Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. And finally, he is the President-Elect of ASPEN, the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Nilesh, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Burns. So Nilesh Mehta, um, thank you for joining us today. Could you take us through uh, what the most recent guidelines are that we should be aware of? And perhaps even more importantly, um, could you take us through the science of what we know about uh, nutrition in critical illness? Sure. As you know, the year 2017 was uh, an important one where the two societies, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the ASPEN, uh, came together to come up with the first collaborative guidelines for feeding the critically ill child. These were published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine as well as in the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. Um, these guidelines are relevant because they uh, reviewed some of the most important issues that one needs to think about while feeding the critically ill child. The guidelines uh, went through a lot of literature. In particular, there were more than 2,000 citations which had been accumulated, were scanned for relevance to this particular field and the question. We looked at PubMed, Medline, Embase, and the search revealed for um, all intents and purposes 16 randomized controlled trials and 37 cohort studies that seemed to answer some of these questions related to nutrition and critically ill child. Having reviewed this literature, the group got together and summarized most of the science in the form of evidence tables. And these evidence tables are provided in the, both the publications. And I would suggest uh, most of the audience would be familiar with some of them, but a detailed dive into these evidence tables would be worthwhile. In, in broad terms, the issue of nutrition in critically ill child caters to four aspects that we struggle with. Why is it relevant? What is the relevance of nutrition in, a, in critical illness? How much should I feed the child, both in terms of energy and protein? When should I feed and by what route? So let's start with the question of why. Why is nutrition important in the pediatric intensive care unit population? I take you through to the recent study from Brazil. This is an area of the world where malnutrition is prevalent. And in that area, a group in the pediatric intensive care unit uh, looked at associations between nutritional status and outcomes in critically ill children. What I show you in the slide, on the x-axis, we have duration of mechanical ventilation. And on the y-axis, we show the percentage of patients that are still on mechanical ventilator during this period in the ICU. And what becomes very clear is these two groups that are differentiated by the z-scores of muscle area, which is a simple anthropometric measurement, are significantly separated, which means a simple anthropometric measurement, in this case, the mid-arm circumference, would predict the ability of a child to separate from mechanical ventilation. 
The graph also shows similar predictors such as weight and height done at the time of admission to the outcome being mechanical ventilation duration. Such correlations have been shown multiple times. We recently looked at a large cohort of children who were mechanically ventilated from over 90 pediatric intensive care units all over the world. We looked at 1,600 patients um, from these countries and the admission body mass index that was measured by these ICU providers seemed to be um, particularly associated as seen in this slide with not just a 60-day mortality, as you can see with odds ratios in underweight and overweight patients significantly higher for dying compared to the rest, but also infections that were acquired in these ICUs and the days in hospital. If you look at the graph on the x-axis, you see days in hospital and on the y-axis are the proportion of patients still remaining in the ICU. And it's very clear that underweight and obese patients diagnosed based on their body mass index at admission do significantly worse and have longer hospital stays compared to those that are normal weight based on BMI. Uh, well, Dr. Mehta, that's a, that's a wonderful overview, but I wonder if I could stop you right now and ask you, um, so you just noted that your findings indicate that obesity is associated with worse outcomes in the pediatric ICU population. But as you well know, a very, very intriguing studies in the adult literature find the so-called obesity paradox, that um, adult patients with uh, an increased BMI have better outcomes. How do you account for that? Why the difference between uh, the pediatric findings and these adult findings? Dr. Burns, that's a very um, interesting concept. The adults, as you rightly pointed out, have shown significant changes in outcomes uh, compared, com when comparing obese with the normal population. We've not yet seen this as profound in the pediatric population, but there are emerging literature, um, particularly in the acute respiratory distress syndrome group, that there might be some benefits of being on the slightly higher BMI scale. The problem with this area is, A, it, there is a scarcity of uh, literature, so we should be a little careful with allowing obesity to uh, be assumed to have better outcomes because obese children, as we have shown in our center, um, seem to be neglected and may have underlying lean mass that is depleted despite them being obese. So the body composition comes into play and in, an, in the near future when we become better at assessing body composition in obese patients, um, we might be able to determine whether this is truly a paradox or is this just our inability to uh, determine how much of this obesity is lean mass, which is more correlated with outcome. And keeping up with the theme of lean mass, which seems to be uh, more of a determinant for outcomes compared to just weight or even BMI, is this study in uh, the adult uh, critically ill population, where in a large cohort of 240 mechanically ventilated critically ill adults, CT scan abdomen was done to determine lean mass, which seems to be a fairly accurate technique uh, if one has access to it. Patients uh, had low muscle mass area and the mortality was up to 30%. When ex examining the associations, low muscle area was significantly associated with higher mortality even after accounting for severity of illness. 
The graph on the left shows the two distinct groups, the blue line showing those with normal muscle mass and the green line in the Kaplan-Meier curve showing those with low muscle mass. And one sees significant differences in their ability to come off the ICU in addition to mortality. So there seems to be something about muscle mass that appears to predict outcomes in critically ill patients. Finally, if you think about muscle mass, some of our most vulnerable kids are the preterms and the infants who are born with a lower lean mass. And in this elegant study by uh, my colleagues in Rotterdam, Netherlands, you see on the x-axis days after admission to the pediatric intensive care unit, and on the y-axis, the amount of protein deficit that these kids accrue over time. And what the slide shows is the patients who are preterm and lower age group, that is under one year of age, are the ones that suffer most cumulative protein deficits. So they start out with a disadvantage with low lean mass, and they continue to lose protein during their stay in the ICU. Finally, the reason nutrition is so important is because in addition to the correlation between malnutrition and outcomes is this appalling amount of delivery that happens in our ICU. I could show you multiple uh, studies to this effect. I'm putting here a slide of our most recent data on surgical patients from all around the world. On the x-axis, you see days in the surgical pediatric intensive care unit, and on the y-axis, you see the amount of energy and protein that was actually delivered to these surgically ill patients, um, and it's in form of percentage of what was prescribed. If you look at day seven, most of these patients receive barely 10 to 20% of their energy and protein prescribed to them. It appears that we have this conundrum of a definite correlation between nutritional status and outcome, and here we are failing to provide nutrition to some of our most critically ill and vulnerable patients. And finally, to bring this to outcomes, there is a direct correlation between amount of energy and protein provided and a plethora of outcomes. On this slide, you see patients who underwent cardiac surgery. These are pediatric cardiac surgery patients who you see both the protein and the energy intakes in relation to protein balance and whether these kids were able to achieve anabolism. And it's very clear that in order to achieve an anabolic phase after surgical stress, one has to be able to deliver at least one gram per kg of protein and 55 kilocals per kg per day of energy. And these numbers I want us to remember because we will come back to them in a little while. We have shown similar outcome relationships in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome in our pediatric intensive care units and in the general mechanically ventilated patient in worldwide ICUs. I show you one such slide here, protein delivery data for mechanically ventilated patients in the pediatric ICU. The average prescribed protein was 1.9 grams per kg per day, whereas the actual delivered was less than 40% of that over a period of seven days. And this is relevant because it is directly correlated with outcomes. In this slide are compelling data to show you the difference between survivors and non-survivors, wherein the survivors have significantly elevated protein intakes compared to non-survivors. And these are data adjusted for severity of illness. And finally, you see a steady correlation between protein adequacy, that is amount of protein delivered compared to the prescribed amount on the x-axis and the likelihood of dying 
on the y-axis, and you can see a linear correlation between the two. Finally, if you think about growth, we have diaphragmatic hernia patients, and um, in our one-year follow-up of cohort of diaphragmatic hernia patients, the two predictors of optimal growth in these patients are patch repair, which indicates severity of the diaphragmatic hernia, and protein intake during their time in the ICU. And it appears that in order to have optimal growth, a minimum of 2.3 grams per kilogram per day protein was necessary during the intensive care unit stay. These are the reasons why I think nutrition is relevant to us. The prevalence of malnutrition, its association with outcomes, the strong correlation between what we provide versus outcomes in the pediatric intensive care unit. And finally, because this is a potential area where we might intervene and may impact outcomes positively. Well, uh, Dr. Mehta, that's a wonderful overview. And I, I think the essential take-home lesson for all of us is that everyone in their practice needs to be sure to track and measure how much is actually being delivered of the total energy provided and not just make assumptions that what's ordered is what's actually going into the child's body. But of course, that raises the question of, well, how much total energy should we be providing to critically ill children? This is such an interesting um, conundrum for us right now, and you are spot on. Um, yes, one should be very particular about how much of the prescribed amount is being delivered, but where do we get these prescriptions from? Let's dive a little deeper into the history of where these numbers come from. For this, we need to go back to 1930s, and uh, we can talk about metabolism and energy requirement without alluding to some seminal work by uh, Sir David Cuthbertson. Uh, Dr. Cuthbertson was a lecturer in University of Glasgow in the 1930s, and it is his observations during that period um, that guide us in terms of understanding metabolism in critical illness. Dr. Cuthbertson made some seminal observations in patients who underwent orthopedic trauma or surgery. And in the slide here, I show you uh, one of his graphs from 1932. On the x-axis, uh, he shows time, and on the y-axis, he shows us multiple elements of the human metabolism, in particular here. Uh, body temperature and oxygen consumption, which increases significantly after surgery or trauma, and more so phosphorus, sulfur, and nitrogen, which he showed were dramatically elevated in the urine after these stressors. Dr. Kurtbutson uh, talks about the source of this nitrogen, which is coming from skeletal muscle. These observations were summarized in his uh, Lancet paper in 1942 and formed the basis of our understanding of metabolic response. Fast forward decades after that story uh, to present times, here's a um, cartoon that uh, depicts some of the key features of metabolic stress response. We will come back to the seminal feature of the stress response, which is in the middle of the slide, the muscle breakdown, which happens. Um, right now, I want to focus on the concept that Dr. Cuthbertson and his uh, colleagues uh, brought up, which is the amount of energy the body expends or needs to fight this response. There were various studies in the 70s that showed a significantly elevated metabolic rate after these illnesses. Based on that assumption, there were many equations that were developed that would allow us to predict these responses. These equations, unfortunately, uh, were developed in healthy adults or healthy children, 
and over the next 50 years, as you can see in this slide, various investigators, including ourselves, began to debunk the accuracy of these equations. Unfortunately, these equations are inaccurate, and they are inaccurate both in terms of underestimating as well as overestimating. So I could flip a coin and determine the metabolic state of a child better than these equations do for me uh, in the pediatric intensive care unit. Now, in addition to this, the pediatric intensive care unit is a heterogeneous uh, cohort. We have patients with a variety of diseases, and I've depicted some of these that uh, you and I take care of at Boston Children's. If you imagine each of these have a different flavor, both in terms of intensity and duration of metabolic response, and therefore the expected energy expenditure elevation. In the last 10 years, several of us have examine these groups in more detail, and one big uh, revelation has been that the metabolic stress response and the energy expenditure elevation has been far less elevated than what we were made to believe in the 70s. And there may be many reasons for this. I believe intensive care has advanced, anesthesia has advanced, but, but unfortunately the practice currently still relies on those equations, and that puts our vulnerable patients at risk. Let me highlight some of the key uh, observations that we've made along with others. In this slide, I show you uh, children that underwent major cardiac surgery. These elegant data from uh, Toronto Sick Kids in the early 2000s, where patients who underwent Norwood surgery had energy expenditures of as low as 40 kilocals per kg per day. These are newborns, infants, where traditionally Prior to these data, we would prescribe 100 kilocals per kg per day, but they're expending not even half of that, and it continues to be the case for the first three days. The shaded bars, along with those white bars, uh, indicate enteral nutrition, which gradually picks up, and by day three, even in these critically ill patients, the nutrition overtakes the expenditure, so you can see overfeeding. These are our data from Fontan repair patients. In the first 24 hours in these patients on the x-axis, one sees that energy expenditure is not only low to begin with, right after cardiopulmonary bypass, but it actually drops further in the first 24 hours, once again achieving low numbers like the ones shown by the Toronto group. The second slide here shows you other seemingly stressful conditions. These are elegant data on resting energy expenditure by Dr. Kohanek and his group from Pittsburgh on children with severe TBI, traumatic brain injury. And you see the energy expenditure in these so-called stress patients after trauma are way lower than what one would have predicted for a normal child of that age, almost to the degree in some cases of less than 40% of predicted. So how easy would it be to overfeed these? And our Boston Children's data on stem cell transplant recipients once again, energy expenditure dipping down to a nadir of 80% of what was predicted. What's curious about the stem cell transplant group is that these are predominantly fed by parenteral nutrition. So right from day one, you are uh, possibly overfeeding them. And finally, I want to allude to this one peculiar stress response, which is burn injury. There's something very visceral about burn injury, something that we've learned during evolution and we can't shake off. The stress response to burn injury remains profound in terms of elevation of energy expenditure, and that's very noticeable even today in modern pediatric intensive care units. So on this slide, I show you the time after injury 
and on the y-axis are the elevations in basal metabolic rate or energy expenditure, you can see up to 200% of predicted, double what a normal child would expend. And what is curious is after burn injury, it takes up to a year for this elevation in energy expenditure to gradually come back to normal. So it's pretty profound. What I'm showing here, Jeff, is a little concerning because I've shown you both unexpected low energy expenditure and then these profoundly high energy expenditures. So we are left with what we called in one of our editorials the Goldilocks dilemma here. How much is uh, just right? Am I doing too much or am I giving too less? And that is the conundrum we are left with in the absence of measuring energy expenditure, which is if the patient is hypermetabolic, I have the risk of potentially underfeeding that patient. And if the patient is hypometabolic, like so many others that I showed you in traumatic brain injury and stem cell transplant, I could significantly overfeed these patients if I rely on estimates of energy expenditure. So Nilesh, uh, how do we sort this out? We're either overfeeding or we're underfeeding um, and the formulas don't work. So what should practitioners around the world be doing to assess the particular energy needs of that patient? You know, you, you, there is absolutely no way around actually measuring the metabolic state. Um, this is easier said than done, but let me dive into some of the basics of how does one begin to measure or accurately estimate the metabolic state and therefore the energy expenditure. For that, I take you back to a little bit of biochemistry. Humans need energy for a plethora of cellular functions. We derive this energy from nutrients that we absorb. These are carbon-based uh, molecules like carbohydrate, protein, and lipids. The body has to convert the chemical energy in these nutrients into the ATP and heat that we rely on for normal life. To achieve this, the best way to do that is a complete oxidation of these nutrients in the cell in the presence of oxygen. And this is what we do, and here's the depiction in this cartoon where the carbon-based nutrients in the presence of oxygen are oxidized to release carbon dioxide and water as byproducts. And in return, you get either ATP, which is then used for various functions uh, by the cell, um, and in addition, also heat, which we allow ourselves to maintain body temperature with. If there was a way to measure directly heat produced by the human body from minute to minute, that would allow us to get a peek into the metabolism underneath. And that's the basis of measurement. And if one thinks about old, and exp old days experiments of calorimetry, it is essentially these uh, principles that they employed. You sat in a chamber and minute to minute changes in body temperature were recorded and the heat eliminated, therefore calorimetry decided what metabolic state you were in. Unfortunately, that's not practical. And an indirect way of measuring the same metabolic phenomenon would be to measure the oxygen consumption during this combustion that takes place biologically in the cell and the carbon dioxide production. And that would be the indirect calorimetry basis. Over the last 50 years, there have been major advances in indirect calorimetry, but here's a summary. Indirect calorimetry uh, can potentially be employed in intubated patients on mechanical ventilators or in non-intubated patients using a, um, a hood. Um, the concept being that one tries to collect minute-to-minute -minute oxygen consumed 
at the, at the level of the respiratory system and the carbon dioxide produced, it is meant to reflect the cellular oxygen consumption and CO2 production. And if the patient is in steady state, the cellular respiratory quotient, which is the value derived from oxygen consumption and uh, carbon dioxide production, is very similar to the respiratory exchange rate, which is the value derived from what we can measure at the respiratory uh, interface, whether it's the ventilator or in uh, a spontaneously breathing patient. So there's a lot of literature on this subject, uh, and using the V.O2, which is oxygen consumption, and the V.CO2, which is uh, CO2 production, one can determine the resting energy expenditure using the Weir equation that is depicted here. In addition to uh, the energy expenditure, the indirect calorimetry does one more thing, which is it allows you to uh, calculate the respiratory quotient, which we alluded to. It's the ratio as shown here of V.CO2 to V.O2. Now imagine back again to your nutrients that we consumed. Here I show you an example of uh, the biochemical basis of carbohydrate oxidation. So the typical carbohydrate biochemistry, it needs six oxygen molecules for combustion to release six carbon dioxide molecules, as you can see in the equation here. It's very clear that the respiratory quotient here would be six CO2 divided by six O2, which is one. So if I was to have a diet predominantly of carbohydrates and nothing else, my respiratory quotient would be one. On the other hand, if I had a diet predominantly of lipid, as many people on certain types of diets do, my respiratory quotient would be 0.7. Humans usually consume a mixture of these nutrients, and the respiratory quotient allows us to tell how the substrate and what substrate and how much is being utilized at the cellular level uh, in the intensive care unit. So it is a, a very elegant uh, physiologic premise that is being employed at the bedside to allow us to one, measure the energy expenditure, and two, how is the body utilizing the substrate that I'm delivering? Uh, well, Dr. Mehta, I think that's one of the clearest explanations I've ever heard of the distinction between the respiratory quotient at the level of the cell and the respiratory exchange ratio, where of course you're measuring expired CO2 and making that inference that the two are equal. Um, but why is it that in, in conditions of uh, elevated supplemental FiO2, so for instance, uh, you've always taught me that uh, the, the value of indirect calorimetry is not accurate if the patient's requiring more than 50% supplemental FiO2. Why is that the case? That's a great question, Dr. Burns. Uh, in order for us to determine the V.O2, which is oxygen consumption, one requires very careful and accurate measurements at the ventilator of both the concentration of oxygen in the air that is coming into the patient, but also the volume, uh, because we want a volumetric determination of oxygen consumption. In order to do that, there are several assumptions that have to be made to allow this to be practical at the bedside. One such assumption is employed in the Haldane equation, which I now show in this slide. And as you can tell, in order for us to be practically able to get accurate measurements, the Haldane equation uh, allows us some shortcuts, but in doing so, 
it has in the denominator the value of fractional inspired oxygen. So as the fractional inspired oxygen value in that denominator gets higher, uh, it begins to tend the actual value closer to zero. So what we found in practice is uh, anything above 50% fractional expired oxygen would introduce error in this measurement. So to try to be more accurate, uh, one uh, avoids patients with higher FiO2s. There are modern um, devices that claim to do this accurately at higher fractional oxygen inspiration uh, values, but these still have to be validated. I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. In your ICU, do you prescribe energy goals based on prediction formulas for energy expenditure? In addition, in your ICU, do you use indirect calorimetry to determine calorie energy requirements? We're back now with Dr. Nilesh Mehta. Nilesh, uh, is there uh, data in the literature to demonstrate that uh, measuring indirect calorimetry in patients in the ICU has actually changed practice, changed uh, the amount of, of energy provided and the type of energy provided? Yes. Uh I think uh, we don't have to look too far for that. Um, in our own unit, once we started looking at indirect calorimetry as a mode of interrogating patients and questioning the resting energy expenditure, uh, we had some revelations. We definitely had some patients that were underfed. and uh, But the bigger re revelation uh, for us was this that I show on the slide here. If you look at the first 30 patients that we uh, measured indirect calorimetry on, on our unit, uh, on the x-axis are these individual patients. Uh, uh, they are uh, depicted on the y-axis in relation to their energy balance. What this means is the difference between what we fed them in terms of calories and what they actually required as measured by indirect calorimetry. What we've done here is we've simulated what would have happened at the end of seven days if we continued to feed them based on our assumptions and our prescriptions um, and not calibrate their diet regimen based on what we measured. As you can see, anything above the zero line is a positive balance. And the cumulative seven-day balance in some of these patients was to the tune of 9,000 calories. So you have thousands of extra calories over a period of time in these patients if we had continued down the path of just predicting or estimating their requirements and feeding them accordingly. So Clearly for us, it was a huge revelation and changed our practice. We presented these data at uh, the SCCM meeting and uh, the concept of overfeeding was not new, but it became a reality for us in our ICU. Uh, beyond our walls, this is now gaining a lot of traction and a lot of literature out there which begins to hint that perhaps less is more may be the theme, at least for energy in terms of critically ill children. And part of the story is uh, the, uh, our ability to overestimate. And therefore, what we are now doing is recognizing overestimation, which led to overprescription and calibrating back to more appropriate and therefore less than what we prescribed amounts of energy. The additional calories, of course, um, are unneeded. Uh, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a cost that's unnecessary. But what is the biggest uh, physiologic risk to the patient um, if they have excess calories? Is, are you implying that actually time in the ventilator could be prolonged because there's an increased CO2 excretion burden? That is spot on, uh, Dr. Burns. 
if you remember the equation that we just looked at, the carbon-based life-sustaining uh, uh, nutrients, uh, when they are oxidized, they release carbon dioxide. If you had a predominance or an overwhelming amount of carbohydrate, one imagines a spike in the CO2 production. And if uh, a patient is vulnerable either because of limited respiratory reserve with already high amounts of mechanical ventilator support, one can imagine uh, a potential uh, impact on not just uh, the duration, but even the amount of ventilatory support required uh, on a day-to-day -day basis to eliminate this excess carbon dioxide. Um, to that point, uh, we uh, recently examined uh, a very vulnerable group like that, and that is uh, uh, our patients on home ventilator support. And we as a group went into these patients' homes, measured their resting energy expenditure, and altered their caloric intake based on the resting energy expenditure for 12 weeks. This was a pilot intervention study, and what we have shown in this slide um, is that we have significantly dropped the minute ventilation that these patients required after calibrating their calories based on uh, measured resting energy expenditure. The CO2 production, as you can see in this pilot study, almost becomes significant as well in terms of uh, dropping down after calibration of energy uh, delivery. So this, was, uh, uh, this study was one of the first of its kind to actually show the impact of overfeeding and how you can avoid that or, or, or revert that by simple nutritional intervention. So, uh, Dr. Mehta, this is a wonderful overview of um, energy and the burden of energy if uh, we're using a formula and we're overfeeding or underfeeding and the need for indirect calorimetry. Can we turn now to protein? How much how do we, and how do we determine how much? Sure, and, and protein is the bigger story, Dr. Burns. Uh, it probably is um, the nutrient that is currently in the spotlight. Let's look at why protein is important. I take you back to the metabolic stress response cartoon that I showed you earlier. And one of the seminal features of this response is the intense catabolism of muscle protein. As you can see in this cartoon, the muscle protein breakdown has a purpose. It releases amino acids that are then diverted to more important uh, functions such as tissue repair, acute inflammatory response, and also to gluconeogenesis. This is an evolutionary response that humans learned probably when we were hunters and gatherers and there was no ready food available during times of injury. So the body auto-cannibalized itself and as a result provided nutrients to survive until uh, one was able to go back and get nutrients. Uh, unfortunately, what we are seeing is an exaggerated uh, stress response that continues even today and perhaps the reason why protein is in the spotlight. What I wanted to show you is a summary slide here from what happens to protein turnover in uh, humans after a variety of illnesses compared with healthy state. So in this graph, on the top you see the yellow bar showing the, the net protein balance, uh, which is determined by the black bar, which is the amount of protein breakdown, and the gray bar, which is the amount of protein synthesized on a regular basis in a healthy human. Most of us are in an anabolic state because we are able to build muscle at during health, and therefore the yellow bar is positive. Below those, bar, below those bars are patients with sepsis, thoracic surgery, those are some of our data, and a heterogeneous group of critically ill patients where one key feature is seen. Um, the the non-radioactive isotopes 
show you that protein breakdown is intensely elevated after all these stressors, sepsis, surgery, or just general critical illness. What it also shows is that synthesis of protein also is elevated, unfortunately never able to overcome the breakdown, and therefore all these patients are in a negative protein balance. And this is key to understanding what happens to protein during critical illness. There are, there are particular uh, problems with this, especially when in the setting of this negative balance, one is unable to provide an optimal amount of protein by nourishment. And in this slide, I show you the sad example of our current protein intakes all around the world. Um, in this group of 1,700 mechanically ventilated patients, the percentage protein adequacy, which is the amount that was delivered related to what was prescribed, is less than 46% in some of our most vulnerable and even less than a quarter of what was prescribed in the first seven days of critical illness. So this is uh, probably problematic uh, in itself, but more so because there is association with the amount of protein we deliver um, with outcomes. Uh, in this slide, I show you some pretty compelling associations between the percentage adequacy of protein, which is shown in the first column, and we've split it into less than 20% adequacy. And you saw some patients did actually get less than 20% of what was prescribed. We compare that with those that got up to 60% and then those that got beyond 60%. What is very clear is there are significantly decreasing odds of dying as your protein adequacy is increased. And all you need to do is get to up to 60% of what was prescribed to begin to see benefits. This is further more important in the burn injury that we discussed earlier, the prototypic, the stereotypic uh, burn, uh, response to burn injury. In those patients, what I've shown you is on the x-axis is time since burn injury, and on the y-axis is the lean tissue that is measured in the body using DEXA, which is a dual x-ray absorptiometry. Using DEXA, one sees that up to nine months after burn injury, the amount of muscle mass or lean tissue in these children with severe burns remains in a negative balance, as in they have had losses up to uh, six months and nine months after injury, and they are unable to recover their muscle mass until after a year of injury. And in this scenario, the amount of protein intake may be relevant. And finally, it is key to note that this lean mass loss or the inability to regain lean mass in burn patients is directly related to the function in these patients. So in this slide, I show you the isokinetic dynamometer that allows you to measure lower extremity strength on extension, and patients who were burned and had lower lean mass had very poor function compared with those who had lean mass preserved versus healthy kids with normal lean mass. So what we've seen here is that the protein story is the one which evolutionary on an evolutionary basis was beneficial, but now we are beginning to see the side effects of this intense catabolism, especially if it is prolonged, and especially if in that setting, adequate protein intake is uh, deprived. Now, this is the, one of the clearest explanations I think I've ever heard of this. I wish I had heard this back when I was taking biochemistry. Um, so two questions for you. One is, what's the takeaway on protein? How much? Is it a, should we be ensuring that children are getting at least a gram per kilo per day, two grams per kilo per day? Um, and then perhaps uh, equally important, could we turn to how 
to deliver energy to these critically ill children. Um, uh, parenteral nutrition through a central line, enteral nutrition, what are the choices? Very important question. Um, in terms of the amount, uh, this is where the scarcity of literature restricts us from making uh, making bold claims about knowing exactly how much we need to give. But you're absolutely right. At least a gram, uh, and in some cases up to 1.5 grams per kilo per day, seems to be associated of, not just of protein. Of protein is uh, associated not just with protein balance, but also some relevant outcomes. Uh, in to summarize that literature, we've. Uh, uh, address that question in the guidelines from 2017 and on this slide I show you the recommendation that we provided which alludes to your question that a minimum protein intake of 1.5 gram per kg per day should be attempted during the first seven days of critical illness. Having said that I do want to clarify that we still don't know the accurate doses for different age groups that are associated with outcomes in randomized controlled trials and therefore uh, watch this space. I think this is a question that needs to be answered. And in the next few years, I, I, I'm confident that we will get closer to a more accurate uh, recommendation. The route of delivery is, is key. I showed you a lot of data on outcome association with energy and protein delivery. One key feature of those studies is a predominant uh, proportion, a large proportion of those studies have only shown benefits of these nutrient delivered via enteral route. And there are very few studies that have shown parenteral nutrient delivery with outcome associations that are positive. There is no doubt that enteral nutrition is physiologically beneficial to the human body. And we won't go into details of that, but there are enough uh, animal experiments and human experiments indicating it's, uh, uh, how essential it is for gut integrity and mucosal immune function. Having said that, parental nutrition has been used as a supplement to enteral nutrition to try to get to those levels that we alluded to, both for energy and protein. And there is a, an elegant study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine last year, the PIPANIC study, which addressed the concept of early versus late parental nutrition. I would urge the viewers to look into that study and the accompanying editorial to try to glean some of the limitations of the study. But the study probably addressed the timing issue once and for all. If you are a site that delivers parental nutrition aggressively on day one, you should probably think again because that strategy was associated with poor outcomes in these three centers in the randomized controlled trial. And if you look at the amount of energy delivered, I want you to recall the numbers that we looked at in a variety of illnesses where the energy expenditure was seldom greater than 40 to 50 kilocals per kg per day. And in this study, the supplementation of parenteral nutrition early resulted in total intakes double that amount. And as you can see, uh, the three centers were able to deliver enteral nutrition to the tune of 50 cals per kg per day by the end of day seven. So the concept of adding additional PN calories to these patients uh, being harmful is probably believable. And I wonder if some of this is related to overfeeding these patients. The exact time when one should start parental nutrition to catch up and not let our patients get negative cumulative balance of energy and protein is still unknown. What I show you here is some of our observations on the challenges with enteral nutrition. Enteral nutrition 
is challenging in the critically ill population. In the last 10 years, a lot of people have worked on trying to show three things. One, many of these challenges are modifiable, are avoidable. Second, some of our old myths about enteral nutrition tolerance in certain groups of patients have been debunked. Uh, and third, that enteral nutrition can reach the goal that you want to in a unit that employs stepwise algorithms. So in the next three slides, I wanted to allude to those three concepts. Here's the slide from our hospital, which looked at details of why enteral nutrition is interrupted. And the slide here shows the key reasons why patients in pediatric ICU are deprived of enteral nutrition after having started it. One of the main ones is feed intolerance. The so-called feed intolerance has for long been uh, a hindrance to advancing uh, enteral nutrition partly because of our inability to accurately assess and diagnose intolerance in these patients. And as you know, Dr. Martinez from my group and several others are working uh, to try to illuminate this topic a little further. And um, in addition to that, there are various procedures that we do that require fasting. And uh, the role of fasting and the duration of fasting is gradually being calibrated as more attention to optimal feeding is being uh, brought to the ICU at the bedside. I wanted to show you that patients who have undergo uh, enteral nutrition interruptions and therefore are deprived for long periods of time are the ones that are our most vulnerable, less than one year of age, as seen in this slide from our data. And they are the mechanically ventilated patients who probably are sicker. Although their PRISM3 scores were similar, these patients who had interruptions to, mechanical uh, to their enteral nutrition had longer mechanical ventilation duration, had higher PN use, parenteral nutrition use, and the time to reach caloric goal was significantly delayed. So these interruptions have implications on some of the resources that we utilize and potentially infectious complications of parenteral nutrition. Lastly, the stepwise algorithm. I wanted to show you in this slide so many of our colleagues who've worked at producing strategic algorithms which are not meant to be protocols but rather guides to help you advance enteral nutrition. The work that is done by these groups have brought us to a phase where many units now employ such stepwise algorithmic advancement of enteral nutrition. Uh, in this slide we have four such groups including ourselves. And what I thought is I would show to your viewers what we use at Boston Children's Hospital. What I'm uh, displaying here is just a portion of our enteral nutrition algorithm that guides us at the bedside. And as you can see in this slide, uh, we start by thinking about what mode of delivery, what route of delivery should we choose in these patients. The question we ask is, is the patient to be able to be fed enterally or not? And if your patient has contraindications to enteral nutrition or is unable to advance on enteral nutrition to reach the goal within seven days, and that's how much allowance we do, we consider parenteral nutrition. In malnourished patients, we may use parenteral nutrition or in infants and premature newborns much earlier. But in healthy patients, we believe in delayed or a more cautious or a pragmatic use of supplemental parental nutrition, as you can see in this slide. And lastly, I wanted to show you the impact of bringing such an algorithmic approach to the bedside. These are data similar to others that have shown impacts. From, uh, these are data from our group. And you can see in the table the 
the group prior to enteral nutrition algorithm implementation and a cohort after implementation of enteral nutrition algorithm at our unit. And we have shown significant reductions in the number of patients who get interrupted. We have shown increase in the number of patients who reach their goal and much earlier. The Kaplan-Meier curves show you on the y-axis the proportion of patients that are able to reach goal energy using enteral nutrition in our unit. As you can see, before we started the algorithm, this proportion was 30% to 40% in the first four days. Currently, as we see on the unit and after the implementation of the algorithm, we have 70% to 80% of our patients reaching goal within the first three days with the use of this algorithm. And there remains some where it is difficult to go much higher. Once again, I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. In your ICU, approximately what percentage of patients receive parenteral nutrition during their ICU stay? Furthermore, does your ICU use a standardized approach in determining when to initiate parenteral nutrition? We're back now with Dr. Mehta. Well, Nilesh, that's just been an, a wonderful overview. How would you summarize the key points of this wonderful talk? Dr. Burns, uh, I think the summary um, would best be done by showing you what I think would be a pragmatic approach to feeding a critically ill child. And on this slide, I show you some key tenets that we've discussed today during our conversation and some others that we haven't been able to. The approach begins by identifying vulnerable at-risk patients. So focus on assessment and detection of malnutrition in these patients or those who are at risk of malnutrition. Focus on anthropometry, weight, height, BMI, as we spoke of in some of our initial conversations. At that stage, we need to be very careful on an individualized energy and protein prescription for these patients. I don't think a one-size-fits-all works for nutrition in a heterogeneous pediatric intensive care unit. Following this, an emphasis on early and stepwise enteral nutrition advancement. Monitoring for intolerance, because the intolerance is the one that addresses safety, and we want to pursue this in a safe fashion. In some patients where truly enteral nutrition is unable to reach even half the prescribed amount, one thoughtfully uses parenteral nutrition as a supplement. Once we've done that, uh, we need to eliminate all premature, aggressive parenteral nutrition use because the randomized control trial from the PIPANIC group has been very convincing for that aspect. And lastly, we need to focus on how does nutrition impact long-term outcomes, and that's where the field needs to go to. We've talked about protein and muscle, strength, ability to come off long-term ventilator support, ability to get back to normal day-to-day -day activity, and even intellectual quotient and developmental uh, ability. These are the outcomes that we need to focus on to finally close this loop on the impact of nutrition and our strategies on long-term outcomes in these critically ill patients. Well, Dr. Nilesh Mehta, I want to thank you, and uh, I suspect I speak for our colleagues around the world, and also thanking you for uh, developing this uh, research uh, program that you have um, examining practice around the world to guide colleagues everywhere on what are the optimal practices for nutrition in the critically ill child. Thank you, Dr. Burns.
This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.